All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the ninth day of January 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, I want to remind you, as I do almost every week, that uh, my newsletter is uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and I focus on junior mining companies primarily, not exclusively, but to a large extent. That's my focus. Miningstocks.com. Miningstocks.com is a place to go to subscribe to my letter and to learn more about it. Also, like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen has an excellent track record, done extremely well for himself and for his clients over the years. ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com is a place to go for that. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises coming along to questions4taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number 4taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, Bonterra Resources, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., and Uranium Energy Corp. Regarding our sponsors, I should mention that I personally am as positive as ever about Novo Resources and RN Resources, even though their share prices have been hit hard of late. Regarding Novo, I would suggest you listen to my interview that I did with Quentin Henning that appeared on last week's show uh, for an update on Novo and, and what they're doing and their prospects. Uh, you can listen to that at J. Taylor Media, jaytaylormedia.com. Go to the podcast page at jtaylormedia.com. Next week, I will be speaking with Ivan Bebek. He is the uh, CEO of RN Resources, and uh, Ivan will give us an update for that favorite of mine as well. I should mention that my friend Chen Lin brought the story of U.S. gold to my attention yesterday, and it does seem as though U.S. gold may be on to a very significant discovery in Nevada, and I will be commenting more about that in my newsletter this coming weekend. Regarding uranium energy, in just a few minutes, I will be talking to Mira Nani of, of that company. The best time to buy stocks is when no one else really wants them, and the best time to sell them, of course, is when everybody is in panic buying mode. There are very few sectors more depressed over the last few years than the uranium sector. Not even the gold mining sector was hit as hard as the uranium sector. But now, there is reason to believe that that sector is bottoming out, and the price of uranium may be in the early stages of a rebound, both because of reduced supply as well as demand that is growing very significantly in different parts of the world. Well, the United States produces a very small percentage of the uranium that it needs for its own nuclear power plants. 
And uh, so the, the supply demand fa- fundamentals seem to be shaping up very well for uranium. And uh, we'll have Amir Anani talk to us a little bit about why his company is re-entering production or plans to um, with a, a little bit higher price than we see now, I think. But uh, things are really looking up. And also, Amir has done a, a great job of taking advantage of this weak uranium market to build up assets uh, so that the company is in a great position to not only produce uranium again, but to produce produce more and more of it in the years to come. So Amira will be with me after the first commercial break. I've titled today's show, 2018 Credit Markets, Smile on Gold, Frown on Stocks and Bonds. And uh, unfortunately, Michael Oliver is not uh, able to be with us today. We uh, didn't have the time for him to be with us because of uh, extended interviews uh, with uh, the guests that are coming uh, in a, just a couple of minutes. But as I just mentioned, Amir will be with me uh, in a few minutes, and then during the second half of today's show, regarding the overall outlook for 2018, Alistair's well-reasoned expectations for the directions of markets in 2018 are based on the credit cycle, which should see GDP as well as the fortunes of Main Street and producers of all manner of commodities increase, while financial assets, starting with bonds, uh, begin a bear market. And I should note that Alistair's views are very much in sync with what Michael Oliver's work is telling him, namely that commodities in general are entering a significant bear market. Well, in Michael's absence today, let me just pass along a few of the remarks that he passed on to his paid subscribers. Uh, uh, those, uh, And I would again suggest that you go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to learn more about Michael's work and to consider subscribing. Well, first of all, Considering the fact that we're going to be talking about uranium with Amir Nani in a few minutes, I want to pass along, Michael recently did some analysis on the uranium market, and he said, and I quote, we prefer to see uranium futures close any month at or above $23.50 a pound. But he also notes, uh, he also said that if it closes above 28 or higher, you have something really big to talk about. Now, before showtime, spot uranium was quoted at 2410 $24.10, which is comfortably above where he wants to see the close at the end of the month. Uh, but clearly, if the supply-demand aspects are coming into play, uh, I'm thinking we might see an explosive rise very dramatically in the not-too-distant future. On January 8th, Michael talked about platinum in a piece headed, Platinum Coming Up From Behind with a Pending Boom. Michael noted that a few years ago, platinum was king of the precious metals markets, but then after it peaked in 2011, it dropped to below $800 an ounce. But now, Michael said, and I quote, we think platinum is about to awaken big time, end of quote. He noted that platinum has built a massive momentum base, Close the month at over $989.60 in February would put platinum in what Michael calls its launch position. Regarding the three-year average, which is $997.39, Michael suggests that it is also a number to watch for a very dramatic rise in price. Regarding gold, amazingly, Michael's line in the sand for gold, at which price he would turn neutral, once again held. Now, three times December 2016, July 2017, and December 2017, Michael set lines in the stand, and each time the price of gold came very, very close to that point at which Michael would have turned neutral, but in each case it bounced off. Again, the reason that I have Michael Oliver on this show almost every week is because I have never had a technical analyst that I've used that has been more consistently accurate than Michael Oliver. 
Not to say that he's uh, without uh, w- without some mistakes along the way, but I just have found him to be. My confidence level is very high in Michael, uh, and and consider the fact that back in January 2012, uh, he had people get out of gold at around $1,600. I wish I had done the same. I'm depending on Michael to help me get out at the right time going forward. But it's not only that Michael Oliver, he, he not only tra- follows these markets, follows many different markles, markets. And so with Alistair's fundamentals syncing with Oliver's technical analysis, I think it's important to take the move towards inflation, which both of these gentlemen see, take it very seriously uh, and try to profit from it. So now we do have to go to commercial break, but don't go away because in just a couple of minutes, Amira Nanny will be with me, and then during the second half of today's show, Alistair McLeod will tell us why the current state of the credit cycle more or less guarantees higher commodity prices this year and beyond. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Amira Nanny. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Amira Nani. He's the CEO, President, and Director of Uranium Energy Corporation. It's a company that trades down here in the United States under the symbol UEC. as 156.2 million shares outstanding. Selling recently at around $1.95 in U.S. money. Gives it a market cap of something around $280 million. Uh, it's a company that I've followed for some time, and then uh, with the uranium prices depressed as they have been over the past few years, uh, not as exciting to look at, but boy, if uh, Michael Oliver is right uh, in his prediction that we're getting close to a breakout, I think uh, Uranium Energy is a company you're going to want to pay attention to. So I'm really glad to have Amir with me again. Thanks for joining me today, Amir. Hi, Jay. It's good to connect back, uh, especially at uh, what uh, seems to be a real turning point here for the sector. Yeah, I think so. And in commodities in general, I know, but uh, uranium uh, seems to be maybe the last one to turn. Uh, maybe, you know, it's got a long run ahead of it somewhere here, I believe. But in any event, you know, we've seen uranium prices at, at a decade low, but nuclear power expansion in terms of new reactors connecting to the grid is at a 25-year high. Uh, this dislocation is a contrarian signal, perhaps. And What is the quick status 
of nuclear power reactors under construction globally, Amir? Jay, it's... um uh, it's a great question, and also I think we need to look at uranium. You, you pointed out right now about how it's, it seems like one of the last commodities to really turn the corner and rally. Well, um, unlike most commodities, it didn't have um, an event um, like Fukushima almost seven years ago, if you remember yeah. the, the, the challenge in Japan. So it's important to look at pre-Fukushima, post-Fukushima to understand kind of where the sector is seven years later. Uh, and uh, that's where uh, I really kind of think that we are nuclear power industry globally is truly a growth industry by any measure. Uh, there's about 447 operable reactors in 30 different countries. Just this morning, uh, United Arab Emirates uh, announced that they've um, connecting two nuclear reactors to the grid. I mean, here it is, a hydrocarbon-rich country bringing nuclear power to generate clean uh, carbon-free electricity. 57 reactors are under construction, Jay. That's more reactors under construction today than pre-Fukushima. And in two 2015 and 2016 and going into 2017, which suspended, these were some of the best years in 25 years, as you pointed out, in terms of new nuclear capacity being added to the grid. And I would just add to that, the recovery in Japan. So I started this answer with Japan, what happened seven years ago. And you look at Japan today, for the first time, there are a handful of reactors that have started operation. There are 14 reactors and applications that are being reviewed for safety review to restart more reactors. You have a prime minister in Shinzo Abe who's won landslide victories in late last year on the back of a nuclear power mandate to restart and have at least 20% of Japan's electricity come from nuclear power. So the story in Japan is definitely shaping up very positively. The global picture uh, is one of a growth industry, as I say, by any measure. You know, one of the, the major theme uh, in the uranium market in 2017, towards towards the end, I guess the second half of the year, I can't remember exactly when, was a large, unpre- unprecedented amount of production cuts uh, announced by the biggest producers. Can you walk us through that, Amir, and, and tell us... Um, yeah, maybe this signals a bottom, perhaps. What are your thoughts on that? 2017 was definitely an extraordinary year for the uranium industry. I mean, against the backdrop of increasing nuclear power capacity that I just talked about uh, and uranium demand that goes with that, the world's largest uh, producers of uranium uh, essentially announced production cuts that eliminate the oversupply that has been really bogging down the uranium market uh, over the last seven years. Uh, so we're talking about, for example, the country of Kazakhstan, which produces 40% of the world's uranium. Uh, Jay, compare that to Saudi Arabia, which is about 12% of the oil market. Uh Can you imagine if tomorrow the Saudis announced that they were going to cut production by 20%? Uh, their production. Mm-hmm. Think about the impact that would have on the oil market. And that's what the Kazakhs have announced late last year. They've announced a 20% production cut. This is coming on the back of Cameco, another uh, uh, global uh, major producer, announcing that they're shutting down one of their lowest cost uranium mines in uh, Canada's Athabasca Basin. And so in total, uh, these two announcements take 44 million pounds of uranium out of the market from big producers low-cost mines. And so if you were a buyer of uranium, a utility who was getting complacent, thinking you can just buy uranium for cheap mm-hmm. <laughs> for a long time, this, this creates action. This creates a sense of urgency. And Jay, you've been following commodity markets uh, for as long as I know, and uh, you're an expert in this. You know whether it's uranium or copper or zinc. When the big producers come in and announce major production cuts, that's drawing a line in the sand. 
that typically signals a bottom for a commodity. Because if the big guys can't make money, uh, then uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to keep producing and, uh, and creating def- uh, uh, losses. So this was the big event in late 2017, these major production cuts that I really think sets the stage uh, in a very bullish way in 2018. It eliminates excess 2018 supply. And if anything, we could be looking at a deficit for uranium in this year. Interesting. Well, uh, you know, that sort of makes sense in, in lieu of what uh, Michael Oliver is looking at in the charts. Uh, he, he's looking at if we get over 28, he sees as an explosive upward move in the uranium price. Um, you know, you, you, you talked about all this growth in, in Asia, a new reactors and so forth. Where does nuclear power sit in the United States within the framework of a Trump presidency? I I would imagine maybe more positive than during some of the other presidents. I'm not sure about that. But do we have a security of supply issue here in the United States? Uh, And how little amount of uranium is mined domestically relative to the amount that's consumed by the nuclear power industry in the U.S.? There are 99 operating reactors in the U.S. Wow. Generating 20% of the U.S. electricity and 60% of the U.S. carbon-free electricity. There uh, definitely has been a more positive posture and positive policy towards uh, wanting to see the development of nuclear industry in the U.S. under the the current administration. Department of Energy in August of last year uh, produced their grid reliability study that basically concluded that without baseload nuclear power, the grid would lack stability, resilience, and reliability. So as a result of this, you definitely have a situation where um, this administration is paying particular attention in wanting to support through policy and action the development of the nuclear power industry, but also the uranium mining industry because uranium is a vital commodity. Jay, right now almost 95% of U.S. uranium requirements for power generation are being imported, majority of that from Russia, Kazakhstan, uh, countries in Africa, and with the uh, production cuts that, were, that was, we were just talking about, one of the uh, sort of stable sources of uranium uh, being shut down, that's the mine in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, the MacArthur River mine, there's uh, even less security of supply available, even if we thought you know, Canada being a safe uh, source of supply for the U.S. market. Nonetheless, nothing replaces indigenous supply, domestic supply for any market. So in the U.S., there's 50 million pounds of annual demand for uranium, and there's less than two million pounds of annual production. So this is about addressing an issue that could be a national security issue, an energy security issue, and one that could lead to thousands of jobs being created if there was a revitalization of the uranium industry. So I think within the big picture of what's going on in nuclear power industry globally, there is a very U.S.-centric story that's taking place as well around the domestic production of uranium. I, I believe that U.S. uranium in the next few years will be uh, kind of going through its own uh, narrative, Jay, and it's one mm-hmm. that's going to uh, take growing importance in the eye of the, admi- uh, eye of the administration and uh, for these very strategic reasons that we're talking about. Yeah, it sort of makes you wonder why uh, the Obama administration decided to sell 20% of the United States uranium uh, supply to Russia, but that's, I guess, uh, an issue for another day. Your company was very busy last year, Amir. In fact, I've been following you on Uranium Energy Corporation for some time, actually since 2006. Uh, and I believe last year was a transformational year for your company and uh, with many acquisitions, of full, and including the fully permitted Reno Creek ISR project in Wyoming. 
drilling and increased resources at Burke Hollow and continued expansion in Paraguay as well. Walk us through your plans for 2018, Amir, if you would, because I think this is a company people are going to want to start paying some attention to, given the turn in the uranium industry. Well, we came into uh, 2017, Jay, first and foremost, wanting to make sure that we put the company in a strong financial position uh, to, to tackle uh, various opportunities, acquisitions, and organic growth. So exactly a year ago, uh, we undertook a public offering. It was uh, very successful. It was many times oversubscribed. But we raised uh, uh, about $26 million in equity, which gave us a very strong treasury. And mm-hmm. to this day, yeah, as of our latest filings, we have just under $20 million of cash on hand. So you can see we've been very focused on managing the balance sheet, being in a strong financial position. That has then become the foundation to accomplish the other things we've done. So first and foremost, acquisitions. We acquired the fully permitted uh, Reno Creek ISR project in Wyoming. As you know, for years, we've been building a portfolio of low-cost in-situ recovery projects in Texas. We wanted to build a second uh, pay, uh, sort of base of assets in the U.S., and Wyoming is the, is the next best place to be in terms of low-cost ISR projects. So we were able to acquire this project, fully permitted for 2 million pounds per year. Remember, total U.S. production of uranium is 2 million pounds per yeah. year. Uh, it, it is a 22 million pound uh, measured and indicated resource, uh, had a pre-feasibility study completed. If you look at just the replacement, the, the amount of dollars that have gone into this project, Jay, it would be close to $100 million. Mm. And we paid $18 million in stock to make this acquisition. Yeah. So this is a classic kind of at the bottom of the cycle type of acquisition, but it's on U.S. soil, it's permitted. And even if you were to come tomorrow and want to permit a new uranium project from scratch, it could take five to seven years. So mm-hmm. there's a high barrier to entry and why we really covet these uh, uh, fully permitted low-cost projects. And that, that brings us to our Burkholo project in South Texas, where last year we drilled over 130 holes. We produced a new 43-101 report at the end of the year, increasing our total resources by over 30%. Um, that project also has this mine permit and some other key production permits. And so when you kind of step back and say, well, what, is it, what does it all look like now? Um, you know, we have 54 million pounds of measured and indicated uranium resources, 45 million pounds of inferred uranium resources. We have our Hobson processing plant, which is a fully built, fully permitted uranium processing plant in South Texas. So we have that infrastructure advantage. Uh, and when you look at sort of the plans for 2018, it's a continuation of the same kind of themes, which is from a financially strong position, continue to make acquisitions. We've announced the acquisition of a project called North Reno Creek, which will be a really great bolt-on to our main Reno Creek acquisition. It will expand our resources and give us even more scale. We look to close that acquisition. We're going to continue to do drilling and development at the Brook Hollow projects to continue to grow the resources. Um, and Jay, last year, despite the fact that the uranium prices upticked a little bit, we saw great share price performance in UEC. The UEC share price was up over 50%. So if the strategy and execution ain't broken, why, you know, why fix it? So stick to our knitting. Stick to what we've done. And you've witnessed us to since 2006 as a company execute each year. And this year, again, from a position, a strong, strong financial position, come in and execute more on developing and acquiring low-cost institute recovery projects. 
Um, and last but not least, you know, our assets in Paraguay. As you know, for years we've now been diversifying and building an asset base in the country of Paraguay mm-hmm. and South America. Geology is very similar there as Texas and Wyoming, so it's a great technical fit for our team and for the company. And we plan to further advance those projects where we have low-cost institute recovery assets, but at the same time, we have a non-core project there. That's something we can discuss next time you have me on your show, a titanium mm-hmm. asset. Oh. Nothing to do with uranium, but a great uh, large asset that we look to diversify and, and spin out and sell. And by mm-hmm. doing so, it becomes a nice value driver for uh, UBC shareholders. Oh, excellent. Well, I, I, all I can think is, uh, as I listen to you talk here and, and consider the situation, the, the uranium industry and the shortage of supply in the United States, you're one of the very few companies that produce uranium. Um, how, how many other producers are there in the U.S.? Uh, today, I would say, uh, are we going to count the, the Russians that... Uh, we're getting a lot of uh, press recently in the, in the news. Not counting them, uh, you know, you're talking about probably four companies yeah. in total that are exactly. doing anything. I mean, that's that's nothing when you right. consider. <laughs> well, I, I certainly with, think that when you know, with with the turn in the commodities and uranium, uh, and with when people start to realize the necessity of this uh, of this metal and how maybe the supplies we've been relying on have aren't all that secure, that uh, people are going to want to look very closely at your stock. I certainly am, and. Uh, it's one I'm going to be talking to my newsletter in my newsletter about more now too, Amira. Thank you so much. Any any one last thought, perhaps, before we conclude our discussion today? I think the timing is uh, very important, uh, and as we said, with the industry has certainly turned uh, a corner. And I would say definitely uh, the developments, uh, Jay, in the U.S. with respect to U.S. uranium mm-hmm. is something your listeners should pay particular attention to. It's uh, becoming a bit political, but it's a strategic commodity, and uh, it's going to be something that. Um, I think you'll see more news and developments around. So a company like UEC with our assets in the U.S. fully permitted for production. And let's not forget the chairman of our board is the former United States Energy Secretary, Spencer Abraham. And so you you look at the various pieces and assets and individuals that we have. I think we are in a pole position uh, to really um, go for the mantle, Jay, and the mantle is to become the biggest uh, uranium producer in the U.S., and uh, I believe that UEC has uh, uh, all the the resources to do that. All right. I couldn't agree with you more. It's an exciting story. Thank you so much, Amir, for being with us. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but uh, don't go away because Alistair McLeod of Gold Money will be with us to talk about how this particular point in the credit cycle, commodities in general, are looking very, very good. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Bonterra Resources, a Canadian exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator Gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. In 2017, Bonterra raised $40 million and attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kinross, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. 
Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource model in 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000-plus meters of drilling where the dimensions of the Gladiator Gold Deposit has been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under BONXF. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod. Uh, He has a background as a stockbroker, banker, economist. He is a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation and head of research at Gold Money, and his weekly articles uh, written for Gold Money are posted uh, on his blog at goldmoney.com. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. It's really good to have you with me, and Happy New Year to you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jay, and Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you so much. Well, I really want to talk to you today about an article that you just wrote titled Investment Prospects for 2018, and you start the article out by noting that uh, very high-paid economists keep getting it wrong year after year, yet they keep getting paid lots and lots of money. Sounds like the definition of insanity. Keep doing the same thing and expect different results. Uh, You're saying essentially forget about what the mainstream economists are saying and pay more attention to capital flows. If you want to know where markets are heading next year, uh, look at the banking sector and what the bankers are up to. I think that's very good advice. Um, so, so maybe you could start talking about that a little bit. I mean, I, I think we, we, you're on the same page as Michael Oliver, who's on this show frequently. Michael is, is convinced uh, that 2018 is going to be a very significant year uh, for the credit markets, for the bond markets, the, uh, the Bund and the, the Japanese bond and the U.S. Treasuries, but he thinks the European bonds, um, the, the Bund is, is, is perhaps uh, most vulnerable. So, but in any event, talk to us a little bit about the credit cycle. You've talked to us about that before as well, and it's always made a lot of sense. So perhaps tell us where you think we're at as we enter 2018 in the credit cycle and what that might mean for the markets. Yes, sure. Um, I, I think you have to look at it almost from uh, a bank's point of view. When a bank is frightened of lending to industry because they've just been through a credit crisis or whatever, then uh, what they tend to do is to put their spare capacity into uh, into government bonds. In the case mm-hmm. of America, we're talking about U.S. Treasuries. Um, they are effectively forced buyers at the top of the market mm-hmm. because at that point, uh, the Treasuries yield will be uh, at the low point in the whole credit cycle. Uh, yet the banks buy at that time because they don't want to have their capital at risk. And as well as that, I mean, particularly if you look at the European banks, um, Basel two and three, 
basically uh, tells the banks you do not need to have any risk weighting for uh, sovereign debt. So you can go and buy Italian debt or whatever as if um, the government was never, ever, ever going to default. It does not impact on your uh, uh, on your capital adequacy margins and all that sort of stuff. You've got to take nothing off for risk. So, um, you know, there is actually a lot of incentive for a frightened banker to go and buy these things. Mm-hmm. But then, but then, as the credit cycle progresses, and uh, guess what? People in the normal real world continue to do things, you know, like make things, um, mm-hmm. buy things, yeah. <laughs> and so on and so forth. You know, life goes on. Um, bankers suddenly wake up to the fact that, well, perhaps they should be lending a bit of money to uh, ordinary businesses as opposed to uh, people in the financial sector, which is where they tend to concentrate to begin with. Um, and uh, the effect of that, of course, is that um, they then start competing with each other to go and lend. But they have got to sell down their portfolio of government bonds in order to do it. And, of course, at that point, what's happened? The yields have risen, which put another way means that the prices have fallen. Mm-hmm. So they realize they realize a loss on their government securities in order to go and lend to real people, if you like, in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Main Street. And that's that's that cycle happens every credit cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's 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 really, you know, it's not that... It's not that the banks take investment decisions. They don't. What they do is they try and avoid risk as much as possible, which is a very, very different thing. So, um, you know, when they have to sell, they have to sell because they need to raise cash, which, of course, is always the worst worst reason to sell, you know, if you put yourself in that position. So banks always get – they're always on the wrong end of the cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that's relevant is if you look at the the five-year U.S. Treasury bond, which I show a chart of in – uh, that the article you referred to, yes. uh, you will see that um, uh, the yield bottomed out um, at, I can't remember what the figure was, I think it was uh, around about 0.6%. Way back in 2012, beginning of 2013, um, it then sort of went up a bit and moved sideways, but then it suddenly accelerated mm-hmm. in the middle of 2016. Now, what that tells me is that um, the banks, if you like, were beginning to to lend to ordinary people, if you like, ordinary businesses, real businesses, uh, at that time. Uh, And now, of course, they're actually sitting on losses on any uh, bond like that. If you move in, I mean, the reason I select the five-year, by the way, is it's Mm -hmm. the longest maturity that a bank is likely to carry willingly on its balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Um, Shorter maturities are obviously more affected by um, uh, changes in interest rates by the Fed. If the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, then that's obviously going to impact at the short end of the yield curve. So what we're looking at is all these um, uh, U.S. Treasuries are now showing losses for the banks. So what do they do? Do they sit on it or do they think, hold on, the economy is actually going quite well now. We're not as worried as we were. If we do not lend to Main Street, our competitors are going to lend to Main Street. So right. what we've got to do is we've got to get in there and get market share. And that roughly is where um, uh, the U.S. banking system is today. Yeah. So so what really starts the cycle then is uh, this competitive issue, I guess. So the economy is getting better. Um, things seem to be, you know, the, the worst is over. Banks feel more safe. 
so they don't feel as urgent a need to hold treasuries. But they're looking around and they're seeing other banks are starting to make bigger spreads by lending money into the real economy. So then we have money getting into the real economy, which then what happens? We start seeing better GDP, better growth. Times seem to be getting better. I mean, we're seeing a bit of that right now in the U.S., it seems, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, not only in the U.S., but all around the world. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Um, this new year comes from the IMF, a paper saying, you know, everything is looking wonderful for 2018. Now, that's fine up to a point. But actually, what you have is you have all this bank credit being expanded into the real economy, whether it's in America or uh, Europe or Britain or Japan or wherever. Um, but you've only got a limited capacity for the goods and services that all this money is going to be buying. So what happens? The prices start rising. And then what happens is that uh, not only, you know, as soon as the prices start rising, inflation, you know, price inflation taking off, you begin to reassess what should the yield be on my U.S. treasuries uh -huh. or the corporate bonds or whatever. So right. you can see that actually this thing, uh, you know, quite quickly can move into that final stage of the credit cycle before you get the credit crisis. And that is the economy is going like beginning to go like a train. It looks jolly good. But, the you know, there's 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 um, uh, shortages of this commodity, that commodity. You've got, um, uh, uh, you know, no inventory left. You've got um, people having to chase prices in order to get things into manufacture. And suddenly you've got an inflation problem. And that to me, very much looks like the outlook for the dollar in 2018. Um, it's also the outlook for everywhere else. And you made um, uh, an earlier reference, um, I think, when we were, before we started this, mm -hmm. but uh, the the um, uh, uh, the bond markets in Europe. I mean, they are so badly wrong-footed. They are in a worse position than the U.S. Treasury market. If you look at the two-year German Schacht bond, it yields minus 0.6%. Wow. I mean, this is this is absolutely crazy. It should be yielding, I don't know, it should, I mean, Germany's economy has been going like a train now for the last two or three years. Uh, um, you know, the bond yield there should be, I would have thought, positive about one or two percent. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Bundesbank, the old boys at the Bundesbank, who are basically sound money men, uh, they've had all this taken out of their hands, all being done across the road in Frankfurt by the ECB, who are all on tax-free salaries, by the way, unlike <laughs> the guys at the Bundesbank. Yeah. Um, and they see this, they must be tearing their hair out, thinking this is a disaster. So in a sense, it's hardly surprising when you look at the demand for gold in Europe, the country which really is buying physical gold is Germany. The Germans are buying it. They see this and they think, oh, dear, this is not good. So um, and you can say the same thing about Japan. I mean, you've got negative rates in Japan as well uh, on, on um, government bonds, I think, for at least over five years. So that, again, is completely misplaced for the current economic circumstances. Yeah. And when you get a, a big switch in terms of uh, interest rates, bond yields, then you've got a growing crisis all of a sudden because of the level of debt, government debt, corporate debt, financial debt, and also consumer debt. It is all at record levels all at the same time. So the ability of interest rates to rise very much actually is very, very severely limited before mm -hmm. it runs into uh, the next credit crisis. Yeah.
No, that's that's frightening. And of course, uh, as you point out in your article, you remind us again that banks are highly levered, and so when they start to have, uh, you know, interest rates don't seem to be rising very much, but in percentage terms, they've risen a great deal, and that has already probably uh, started to cause a lot of losses on the on the books of the banks. The banks then become yeah. vulnerable at some point in time. Uh, and then what happens? And they have to go back to another QE before they ever normalize rates? Is that what we've got ahead of us in 2018? Well, the, the, the sequence of events has to be crisis first. The Fed then comes galloping to the rescue and writes an open check, you know, and there's QE and there's everything else. But you've got to have that crisis first. They're not going to do it before then. Until then, the Fed is still going to be pursuing the mantra of, you know, we've got to normalize interest rates and and so on and so forth. We've got to reduce our balance sheet, which I think is actually quite difficult for them to do, but um, you know, it's not going to stop them trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Then, you get the, then you get the credit crisis, and then the whole thing stops and they go into reverse. Um, I think that the, the economists in Fed think it's most unfair. You know, they try very hard to get it right, and then suddenly the market upsets all their plans. <laughs> but um, I think you and I would have a slightly different approach to this. But, well, I think um, we would, you know. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alistair, let me ask you about some of the practical market applications here now. You're, you're talking about the much more severely depressed interest rates in Germany and Japan, places like that, uh, that if they're going to normalize to the extent they try to and rates start to rise there, I suppose that should make for a stronger euro, a stronger yen perhaps, and the dollar then loses value relative to those currencies. Do you see it that way into 2018? Uh, Yes, I do. And I I see it um, for... Um, a slightly different reason than, than than you might you know sort of draw as an implication from uh-huh. what we've said so far. Um, the problem I think that uh, the dollar has is that it in 2018 it will be begin to be replaced by the Chinese yuan wow. uh, as a trade settlement uh, uh, currency, um, and I think that where this is going to really catch the headlines is when uh, the uh, Shanghai Futures Exchange starts um, offering a contract in oil um, exchangeable exchange for uh, yuan. Now, the reason this is important is that China is increasingly r- requiring her oil suppliers to sell oil for yuan. If you, you know, if, if say Saudi Arabia wants to sell uh, uh, oil to China, Saudi Arabia is going to want to keep its market share. Um, if it turns around and says, I'm sorry, we're only taking dollars because of some agreement that King Faisal came up with back in 1974 with mm-hmm. President Nixon, you know, the Chinese are going to say, well, okay, that's your problem, but uh, <laughs> we're going to give preference <laughs> to uh, people who sell for our own currency. Yeah, um, and, and I believe, um, Alistair, I saw somewhere January 18th is when they're going to start that. Yes, um, uh, this is not officially confirmed, but uh-huh. apparently, um, I think as Bloomberg said, a, you know, a, a trader with knowledge, as it were, said that that's when we can expect that contract to start. They've done all the testing and all the rest of it, and this contract, actually, they wanted to produ- uh, introduce for the last uh, three or four years or so, when they first started talking about it. It's actually a very, very sensitive thing, because as you can imagine, that if if we begin to see the petrodollar regime being chipped away, 
then uh, inevitably that is going to rebound very, very uh, uh, um, much against the dollar, against the purchasing power of the dollar, which is why, you know, which is why it's such a sensitive subject. Um, if we're seeing, the, in effect, the end of the petrodollar, and the petrodollar deal was between President Nixon and um, uh, the King of Saudi Arabia back in 1974, if we see the end of that agreement, effectively we're calling time on the dollar being the unit of pricing for all traded commodities around the world. That's I'm huge. Say, that, this, this, huge. Is a, this is a potentially a huge it development. It is. I'm not saying that this will happen immediately. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that this is the first crack, if you like, in the eggshell of um, uh, uh, dollar uh, hegemony. And uh, in that sense, I think it's very important when we see that contract, we will be. I think we will tell ourselves that is the end of the dollar period, which ran from 1974. Um, before then, obviously, we had the Nixon shock in 1971. Um, so you had a sort of period, if you like, between 1971-1974, when the dollar replaced gold, if you like, as the reserve mm -hmm. currency and became accepted as such, uh, particularly in the energy markets, which was so sensitive at that time. Now we're looking post that era. So I think this is a very, very important development that we're likely to see in the coming months. Now, the Chinese could well try and delay. They've delayed and delayed and delayed this contract. But I think it's getting to the point where they cannot really delay it anymore, um, simply because if they don't do this contract, someone else will do it. They could do it in Dubai tomorrow um, mm -hmm. because Dubai already has, for example, a gold contract settled in Yuan, mm -hmm. um, which is priced off the Shanghai Gold Exchange. Um, and, uh, of course, all the oil uh, producing nations in the Middle East surround Dubai. It's the natural center for them to issue such a contract for those countries selling oil to um, uh, China being settled in Yuan. So, I, you know, this, this to me has got a huge feeling of inevitability about it. Wow. Um, and this is why I think that, you know, finally China has got to give in and, and accept it. And in any event, it's the direction of travel which, tra which China wants to go in anyway. She wants to replace the dollar mm -hmm. with her own currency for the purposes of her own trade. Alistair, there is another element to this, too, I believe, that you haven't uh, spoken about yet, and that is the Chinese have uh, have built up their gold reserves tr dramatically, as have the Russians to a certain extent. And uh, is it then possible that we might see, for example, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, if there's, and they are, as I understand, China is Saudi Arabia's largest customer now, that... Uh, that that China that Saudi Arabia might say, well, I'm not so sure about yuan. How about they could take their yuan and go buy gold with it? Then, yeah, is that is well, that uh, part of the, the deal, deal here? Um, I don't think that that is part of the deal as such. But the whole point about having a futures contract to hedge your currency risk is that you can then use that contract to hedge into something else. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, this is why gold is important. Now, um, whether Saudi Arabia would be so insensitive to do that, I actually think, I, I actually doubt it. Mm -hmm. um, but one country which will definitely do it is Iran. 
because, mm. uh, you know, as far as Iran is concerned, the dollar is the currency of Satan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is an almost official statement. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, not only that, but America is ramping up again the rhetoric against Iran. Right. And it seems to me that it's more than a coincidence that you've got President Trump tweeting about, you know, all the sort of, um, you know, no human rights and all the rest of it and mm-hmm. how terrible and undemocratic Iran is. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, you have got all these, you know, the whole thing is being stoked up. So to my mind, I think Iran wants that contract because it doesn't want to use the dollar at all. And furthermore, it is it is completely aware that America will do everything to stop Iran using the dollar. So um, that, to me, I think is the initial situation. Mm-hmm. But w- what's what's interesting, it'll come out in time. I mean, we have seen the price of gold shoot up recently. And the open interest on COMEX, I don't think I've seen it increase so rapidly in such a short period of time ever since I really started observing it. Mm. I mean, we've, we've gained 54,000 contracts since the market bottomed mm-hmm. uh, back in the 11th or 12th of December. The price has risen from um, around about, 12, was it 12.30? Yeah. We're, currently, we're, we're currently at 13.20-ish or 13.15. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, without stopping. I mean, this is very, very sudden, steep interest in gold and I wonder when the dust settles whether we'll sort of turn around and think ah you know their whole sort of confluence of things coming together I mean another thing worth mentioning is that um, it's not just this oil contract you know suddenly sort of coming on uh, January the 18th, if that's when they start dealing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the, um, uh, the governor of the Central Bank of China actually had a meeting on the 27th of December with the finance minister of Saudi Arabia. Mm. So what do they talk about? Uh, yeah. I don't think it was the grandchildren. I yeah. think it was about things like uh, this contract, I, you know, and the ability of um, uh, Saudi Arabia to hedge. I have little doubt that the subject of an Aramco state came up in this. Mm-hmm. We also know that China has various other joint pro- um, uh, uh, joint uh, investment pro- um, projects, which it's, it's, it's doing with, with Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia. So there is actually quite a quite a sort of tight bond beginning to be formed between China and Saudi Arabia. So, yeah, I think this is interesting. And to see gold suddenly shoot up um, like this at the same time tells me that I think we're probably um, guessing in the right direction here. Yeah, there certainly have been a lot of changes politically and a coup d'etat of sorts in Saudi Arabia too. I wonder if there might be some connections with all of that. The old regime in Saudi Arabia being replaced by a newer, younger Regime, and then, uh, as I understand it, that Saudi, that China is Saudi Arabia's largest customer. The UN, United States used to be, no longer true. I suppose our fracking and our our own self reliance to a certain extent maybe uh, was sort of self destructive in terms of the existing petrodollar scheme, which is to me, Alistair, it seems like it could be empire ending kind of a thing if if it goes too far. Yeah, well, Saudi Arabia actually sells. Um, very little or no oil to America now at all. Yeah. Most of your light stuff comes from from um, uh, Nigeria, mm-hmm. that side of that side of the of the of the pond, as it were, which is a lot closer. Um, so no, I mean the point you're making is right, and that is that uh, Saudi Arabia's commercial interests are very much into Asia, mm-hmm. and particularly China, which of course is the the engine 
of um, the future prospects for the whole of uh, the Asian continent. Sure. I mean, with the, you know, with all the infrastructure development and transportation and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, people don't realize just how um, rapidly this development is occurring. Yeah. Um, I mean, in China, they're now shipping these um, standard container units um, from China into Europe and back again at an incredible rate. I mean, something like 400,000 units. Hmm. Um, now, the reason this is important is that at the moment, it takes less than two weeks to get from uh, Beijing to Stuttgart, let's say, mm-hmm. or alternatively for a Mercedes, a manufactured Mercedes car to get from Stuttgart to, to, to Beijing. Sure. Now, that, that compares with 30 days by sea. So you can see that the time value yeah. um, of all this infrastructure is so beneficial to uh, China, to Europe, to trade. And America is not taking part in this at all. America is almost isolating herself from this. America is turning around and saying, you know, you want to trade with us, you're going to have to pay tariffs. We're not prepared to (laughs) offer you any favorable deals. So, you know, America is just cutting herself out of this deal. And that, I think, is one reason. Getting back to a basic question you had, and that is the relationship between various currencies. I would say that this is one very, very good reason why uh, the U.S. currency will be weak over the course of 2018. All right. Let's uh, just summarize here then. If we're looking at, uh, I think what I hear you saying is you can't really afford to pay too much attention to economists' predictions as, as we hear them on the mainstream media. A more reliable method is to look at capital flows, and the capital flows then would seem to suggest bullishness for commodities and precious metals, bearishness for uh, for for financial assets, for stocks, for bonds, and then perhaps for stocks as well. Uh, is that sort of what you see going into 2018 as we Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the, the relationship in, the, in financial markets is bonds tend to peak first. Well, we've seen that. They peaked back in 2012, 13, the turn of the year. Um, equities then peak second, and I would think that fairly shortly we will see that. Um, and as bond yields have their next sort of jump up, that will really start undermining the equity markets. And when you start getting price inflation coming in, um, at that stage, I think that um, that will begin, you know, the equity markets will begin to get really frightened about higher interest rates. And at that stage, I think it will take a, a, a pretty nasty toss. All right. Well, it's a great food for thought as we start this new year. Alistair, thank you, as always, for spending time with us. It's always a pleasure. Your insights are so valuable, and I would tell our listeners to go to goldmoney.com uh, to read Alistair's, and uh, there's a couple of other analysts there that also provide some great ideas. Uh, go there, goldmoney.com, and uh, also avail yourself to the services that uh, this wonderful company now provides. I certainly have, and uh, I really, really high, highly recommend Gold Money uh, to my listeners. Thank you, Alistair, for being with us, and I hope we can do it again sometime very soon. I hope so, too, and it was very much my pleasure, and uh, happy new year to all your listeners. Thank you very much, Alistair, and same to you and yours. Well, next week uh, we'll have another fascinating guest. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who it's going to be just yet. Uh, Go to jtaylormedia.com to keep up with this radio show, as well as uh, very important articles that appear there, too. So uh, until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. (music) 
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. 